0: We do praise you, Father and Son and Holy Ghost. We're amazed, when we're in our right minds at least, we're amazed at how you have blessed and cared for us, not only in creation and providence, but most especially by our redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, that you have made us your own with everything that we are and everything that we have. May we serve you gladly, with grateful hearts, with everything that we are and all that we have, to the praise of Jesus' glorious name. We ask it in his name, amen. I invite you to turn to the fifth chapter of Romans. Uh, We are back uh, in this letter after a brief brief, uh, break, just a little time to think together for about three weeks um, about worship. And I want to read these first five verses. We're going to spend a couple of weeks with these first five verses, the first couple of verses this week and then next week, and you'll want to be here for this. Uh, we're going to talk about suffering next week, and we're going to talk about suffering because the Bible talks about suffering. And thankfully, the Bible gives us some very, very hopeful, hopeful teaching concerning suffering. So that's where we'll be next week. But uh, before we get there, there's some other things we want to look at, and we want to look at these first two verses. I'll read all five. We'll look at these first two verses, and I want you to pay particular attention to three very, very important words, peace, access, peace, access, and hope. Peace, access, and hope. And I hope that you're encouraged. Let's read together. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's meaning, there's no embarrassment in having your hope fixed. Fixed upon God himself. But that's next week. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. Lord, encourage us, encourage the hearts of your people with these words, peace and access and hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are, uh, we're back in this letter to Romans, and the last thing that I would want for us to leave behind us is our thinking about worship, the stuff that we talked about for the last three weeks. Um, the last thing in the world that I would want for us uh, to lose sight of is what it is that's going on in worship, that we're somehow leaving all of that behind And now we're back to sermons and the business of lectures and presentations and that kind of stuff. Because that, I hope, I mean it was brief, but I hope that you at least caught a glimpse of the fact that that is not what preaching is. Preaching in the context of worship, in the setting of worship. Remember these two words, drama and dialogue. Preaching in the context of worship, in the setting of this drama that we reenact each week where God calls us out of the world just as God called Israel out of Egypt. God calls us out of the world and just as, as the Passover set Israel on their exodus, it set them on a path toward Mount Sinai where they met with God and entered into a marriage relationship with God. Worship is a reenactment of that whole thing. We come here under the cross. Our Passover has been sacrificed for us. God calls us to himself, calls us into his presence. As we said last week, when we pass over that threshold, we pass out of this world or that world and into the future. We step into the future. We step into the presence of God. God comes down, we go up. There's way more going on here than meets the eye. And when we come to a sermon, it is God speaking to his people. I I know. I know what you see. I know what you see. And I know what you hear. I know what you probably get tired of. But there's something else going on here, and that's the thing we want to be listening for. We want to be listening. I do, even as I do this, you do as you listen to me. Do You want to be listening for the voice of the shepherd. You want to be listening for the voice of the king. You want to be listening for the voice of your father, because he comes to speak. Paul said to the Ephesians, he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Who came? It's Ephesians 217. Who came? Jesus came. He came in Paul's preaching. Jesus himself came. And so God is here. He is here in the person of his son. He is here in the person of his son by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is here to speak and to comfort his people. He's certainly here to convict any who may not be his people. He's certainly here to speak truth to any who may not belong to him, who may not be sheep, who may not yet have crossed over that line, stepped through that door, called out and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He's certainly here to speak to all of us. He's here to speak to the lost. He's here to speak to the found. He comes to speak truth, to speak comfort whatever our need, wherever we are. And he comes, God does, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the person of his Son, he comes to preach peace to us. He comes to speak words of comfort to us. And this passage is filled with words of comfort. I've given you the three words, the word peace and the word access and the word hope. I mean, they're big, big words. And the context of these words is, is basically this. Let's, let's get these three words that Paul uses in their context. They come in these first two verses of Romans 5, but the first word in Romans chapter 5 is the word therefore. Therefore. Now I learned this when I was a brand new Christian. Now, by the way, just to set the record straight, I wasn't born as a Christian, I was born again as a Christian. (laughs) Okay, if you have a question about that, come and see me. Please, I'm serious about that. When I was first a Christian, after God gave me new life and made blind eyes see and deaf ears to hear and a dead and unbelieving heart to embrace glorious things that before I thought were foolishness, that's some of what is in this business of being born again, very early on, someone said whenever you come to the word therefore, you should always ask the question, what's the therefore there for? It's a connector. It connects what is to come with what has already come. It ties what follows to what has preceded. What's the therefore there for? Paul is going to talk about the blessings that come from being justified. In other words, he's going to think through implications here. He's going to work this stuff out. What difference does it make that I'm justified? That's what he's been dealing with through these first four chapters. He began with sin, I mean, he actually began with a kind of an introduction and then some personal greetings. And then in 118 and following, he deals with the problem of sin, that it's a big problem. It is the three-letter, four-letter word that we don't like to deal with. But he deals with it right out of the chute because it's a big problem and it extends to Jew and Gentile. And we all labor under it. We labor under the guilt of it, the shame of it, and we labor under the brokenness that comes from it. We all do. The reason this world is so broken, the reason you are so broken, the reason you labor under guilt and labor under shame, the reason we feel the weight of this is because of Adam and Eve and their disobedience. Adam's disobedience plunged the whole of the human race into this condition of brokenness, and Paul's dealing with it. But then in 3.21 and following, he deals with God's solution to the problem of human sin that God does for us what we're powerless to do for ourselves, helpless to do for ourselves. And he does it in his son. i got to say it again. This is where Christianity, this is where the gospel is different from everything else. This is where it really is good news. I shared it with the inquirer's class again this morning. Every other religion of the world, test me in this, every other religion of the world says, Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Christianity is the only religion of the world that says, it is done so that you may live. It is done so that you may live. And God has done it in the gift of his son to be received by faith That's what chapter 4 is about. Abraham is the big illustration of the fact that a person gains right standing in the presence of God, not on the basis of who he is, not on the basis of what she does, but solely on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done received by faith. Abraham believed that. He believed the promise of a coming Redeemer just as we believe the fulfillment of the promise the Redeemer who has come. He was looking ahead, we are looking back. It's all, always about Jesus. And what the Father gives as a gift, free, which we receive by faith. And that is what puts me in right standing before God. That is what justifies me. And you remember what justification is. Let's just remember that justification is God's declaration of innocence. The person who comes to Jesus, who embraces this cross, who says, I'm a sinner, I can't do it on my own, I'm tired of trying to do it on my own, I will never find acceptance with you, turns away from himself, that person embracing Jesus, what he has done, who he is, that person is innocent. Innocent no longer guilty, fully accepted by the Father. This really really goes against the grain of everything that we are as Americans, right? Can do, can do, independent, you know, Yankee, independent, I can do this, I can do this. No, you can't. The Christian is someone who has understood, finally, I can't do it. And it's come to Jesus. And now Paul is saying, look, this is the implication of all of this. This is the implication. And these next four chapters, 5, 6, 7, and 8, are basically about that. Implications. And here's the big implication. Here is what the Apostle Paul wants to communicate to the people who are listening to this letter as they hear it read. 5, 6, 7, and 8 are all about assurance. It's all about assurance. If you are justified. Look, Paul understands the kind of world we live in. He understands people have to get up and go to work. He understands that when people become Christians, when they embrace Jesus, stuff out there doesn't change. He understands they go back into the world. He understands the world is a messy, broken, damaged place, and it's a dangerous place. He understands they have consciences that scream at them, guilty, guilty, guilty. He understands they have hearts, and out of those hearts well up all of these nasty, raunchy, rotten things. And he understands that they have an enemy, an opponent, who is their accuser, and who will drag them down and rob them of their joy and steal away their assurance. And for these next four chapters, what he's going to deal with again and again and again is assurance. He, what Paul wants, God, through Paul, wants the listeners and wants you and me. God wants us to know that we are safe. Safe. If I've come to Jesus, I'm safe. Look, he begins, he begins this section with words of assurance. These first two to five verses. We have peace with God. We have access into his presence. We have hope in the midst of suffering. And he concludes this section with words of assurance. Right? Verse 31. If God has given us his own son, how will he not also in him freely give us everything? If he's done the hardest thing, won't he give us the lesser things? If he's given us his son, that's the hardest thing. Giving his son to be a sacrifice for us to restore us to fellowship with himself. If he's done that, won't he give us everything else? And it's a rhetorical question. And the answer is, of course, he'll give us everything else. In the last two verses, I tell you, there is nothing in all of the creation that will ever be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus again. The whole section is Paul drilling into the hearts and the minds and the souls of the people who are listening to this letter be read, drilling into their hearts the fact that they're safe and secure and that they don't have to be afraid anymore. They belong to Jesus. That's what this whole section is about. He deals with some objections. He deals with some issues in the midst of it, but that's what he's doing. And it gets started with these three words. Peace. We have peace with God. Peace with God. What is peace? Now, you want to know this. You want to know that for a person like Paul, for a Jewish person like Paul, peace is a very big word. I I grew up... Well, actually... I didn't really start to grow up until this was almost over, but I was making an attempt at growing up in the 60s. <laughs> and there were peace signs everywhere. You know, and the whole deal, the whole thing was was peace, you know. John Lennon, still give peace a chance, you know. And there were marches and demonstrations in the streets and they were all in the name of peace and you know, peace was a big deal. What was the thing? Where where did we want peace? I remember honestly, and this is just being a little Autobiographical here. I remember being a junior in high school. Just remember lying in bed late one night listening to my radio, and it was some report about either what was going on in Vietnam or what was going on in the cities of our country. It, it, it was sometime in the mid to late 60s when Newark was burning, and Detroit was burning, and Los Angeles was burning, and all this stuff was going on. I remember lying in my bed thinking, if only I could speak to the United Nations General Assembly, I could persuade them to give peace a chance. Peace. What did we want? We wanted peace. We wanted tranquility. We wanted an end to hostilities. Now, that's a part of peace, but for the Hebrew person, for Paul, it's much bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. The word in the text here is the word... From which we get our word, Irenic, right? If you know someone named Irene, she is a peaceful person. That's what Irene means. That's what Irenic is about. An Irenic person is a person who is peaceful and who pursues peace. This word translates the Old Testament word shalom, and that's the big word. And the word shalom means a great deal more than just an end to hostilities. We'll come back to that in a second. But just know that this word shalom, this word peace, is really big. Do you want a picture of shalom? Read the creation narrative. Read Genesis 1 and 2. Read them and understand that God's whole purpose in creation His whole agenda in creation was to exalt himself as Lord and King, as a God who blesses and prospers lavishly. Look at the creation narrative. How everything is beautiful, everything is harmonious, and everything is pulsating with life and with beauty and with wonder. And there is harmony every place. That is shalom. You want a picture of shalom? Look at 1 Kings chapter 4. It's a very interesting passage. It's a passage that summarizes what the reign of Solomon looked like. Solomon, whose name comes from the Hebrew word Shalom. Shalom. It's a striking passage at the end. What do you see? You see a picture of the restoration of all things. Here is the king seated upon his throne, Solomon, whose name means shalom and what is characteristic of his rule and reign. The text says, everyone in the kingdom ate and was happy. Everyone in the kingdom ate and was happy. And it goes on to describe the fact that Solomon's barns are filled with horses, His silos are filled with grain. And not only is there abundance in his house, but everyone has his own home, has his own vine and fig tree. Everybody is landed secure and safe in his own place. The prosperity of the king, the blessing that is upon the king trickles down to everybody in the kingdom. Got your attention, huh? Shalom is a huge, huge image. And you go beyond the material blessings. Solomon is a person who writes music. He writes beautiful poems and songs. And he's one who is given great wisdom. And with his wisdom, he studies nature. He identifies identifies lizards and, and various kinds of trees and bushes. Folks, what 1 Kings 4 is a a picture of restoration, and it's a picture of what is coming. It's a picture of what is out there, the new heaven and the new earth pulsating with life, filled with God's blessing and benediction, with abundance that flows even to the least of us. You want a picture of Shalom? Listen to Isaiah 32, verses 14 to 18. Listen to the transition and listen to how the transition is effected. A transition from thorns and thistles and forsakenness to a condition of bounty and fruitfulness. Listen, for the palace is forsaken. The populous city is deserted. The hill and the watchtower become dens, dens of badgers, dens of wolverines. Pun intended. It becomes the joy of wild donkeys and pastures of flocks. Flocks not of sheep, but flocks of wolves. Until... The spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell even in the wilderness. Righteousness will abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be shalom the result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet, resting places. I think that's become my favorite verse in the whole Bible. That's what I want. I want quiet. I want rest. I want peace. I want fruitfulness. I want abundance. I want life to be good. And that's what shalom means. And that's what Paul has in mind as he writes this letter. He's writing about peace in that big sense. But here in Romans chapter 5, Paul understands but you don't get shalom in the big sense until you have shalom in this very narrow and very specific sense. The blessings of shalom do not come to me until there is a shalom between me and God. I have, if you are a Christian this morning, Paul is saying you have peace at that most fundamental and foundational level. And in this particular sense, at the center of the big blessings of shalom is this sense of peace, an end to hostilities. That is what justification does. It brings an end to the hostility, an end to the enmity. There is no longer any threat to you if you are a Christian. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that relational peace between me, the sinner, and God, the holy God, is merely a foretaste of this avalanche. Imagine the Hoover Dam breaking and all of the stuff that would flow out of the Hoover Dam. That's sort of a bad image, maybe mixing metaphors here. But the peace that exists between you and God if you're a Christian is a foretaste of God's unleashing the mammoth and massive blessings of shalom upon you in the new heaven and the new earth. There's peace. There's peace between you and God. That's a great word of assurance. Again, I think this whole section is about assurance. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.1, If you're a Christian, even in the midst of the struggle of Romans chapter 7, right? I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I should do. All of that stuff that everybody understands and knows. Paul says in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. There is peace. No threat. Secure. Safe. But you not only have peace. You have access You have access into this grace in which you now stand. Now, that's an interesting word too, access. It's a strong word. Um, It's hard to convey in our particular understanding of things just how strong this word is. Some of the translations render it an introduction. We have an introduction into this grace in which we now stand. And the word stand is a strong word as well. It means literally to cause to stand, to make to stand. It conveys notions of rootedness and permanence. Okay? Gained access, gained an introduction. There's a permanence about it. I love what Martin Lloyd Jones says about it. We don't shuffle into this grace. We don't sneak into this grace. We don't come in through the back door. We have an introduction into this grace in which we stand and access into this grace in which we stand, and there is a permanence about it. Again, the idea is security and assurance. Where did we get the introduction? Well, here's, here's, a, here's an image that I think is helpful. Think Kings. Think kingdoms, think the powerful and the powerless, think rags and riches, think princes and paupers, think of any of those images, how does a pauper get into the presence of the prince? How does one who is in rags get into the presence of one who has riches? How does a citizen get into the throne room of the king? You have to have an introduction, right? You've got to have somebody take you there. Beginning to come together? Who takes you there? How do you get into the presence of the king? Jesus. It really is the squirrel, isn't it? For those of you who have been around here for a while, Right? You know the little story about the, the pastor who's preaching the sermon to the kids and, and, the, and the pastor says to the kids, what's, what's gray and has a long bushy tail and lives in trees and nobody says anything? And he says, no, come on, what's gray and bushy and has a bushy tail and lives in trees and, and buries acorns and still nobody says anything? And finally little Tommy puts his hand up back there and he says, he says, well, I, 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 I think the right answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. It's always the squirrel. It's always Jesus. How do you get into the presence of the king? It's always because you have an introduction. You've gained an access. There's a story that's told. I, don't, I heard this story years ago, and I heard it from someone who's a great storyteller, and I never could ever get from this guy, the source from which the story came. And great storytellers frequently make things up, just to tip, but it's a great story. The story is told of the Baron von Rothschild. Do you know of the Rothschild house? The Austrian banking family, the the financial family, this massively wealthy family that had the largest privately held wealth in the history of mankind, more than Bill Gates, more than the sheiks. Wealthiest family in the history of the world. This young inventor comes to the Baron, because he wants somebody to fund his invention. And the baron listens very politely to the young man. Somehow the young man got into the guy's office. He listens very politely to the young man, and he says, young man, I am not going to fund your invention. But come with me, and we will walk through the financial district, and you will have all of the money you need. Why? Because as the baron walked through the financial district in Vienna with his arm around this young boy, this young boy became credible to anybody who wanted to make an investment in his project. It's because he had an introduction. It's because of the one he was associated with. It's because of the one who had his arm around his shoulder. If you're a Christian, you've gained access into the presence of the King. The King of the kings and the Lord of the lords. And who has given you that introduction? It is Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. United to him, connected to him. Have him, Jesus, Did you hear it as I prayed it this morning? I wasn't praying it for your benefit. I was praying it for my own. God is my father. Jesus is my elder brother and friend. And Jesus, my elder brother and friend, leads me with his arm around my shoulder into the presence of the father. We have access into his presence, into this Grace in which we are now rooted, never to be removed. And then we have hope. And we rejoice in that hope. Paul says in verse 2 we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Two minutes. This warrants four sermons. What is he talking about? We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does Paul mean when he writes to the Corinthians and says, we're being transformed from one degree of glory into another? What is that? See, we don't have categories for this. But let me give you the quick thumbnail sketch of what it is that Paul's talking about. When Paul says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, he is thinking very much as one who is immersed in and shaped by and formed by the scriptures, by the teaching of the word of God, he's thinking very much about the whole reason and purpose for which you were created. That's what he's thinking about. He's encouraging his people to go back to Genesis 1 He's encouraging these people to remember that they were created in the image and likeness of God and that they are different from everything else in the whole of the creation and that God's purpose and design in creating them was that they should behold and reflect the very glory of God. And he's reminding them that it is the fall that has made a wreck of the whole of it. What is it that Adam and Eve lost? They lost a lot of things. But what is it that they lost supremely because of the fall? They lost their ability to see and to wear the glory of God. They lost their ability to see it and wear it by their corruption by their death and sin, they lost the purpose for which they were created in the very beginning, to be glory bearers, to stand in the presence of God and behold his glory and to reflect that glory through the whole of the creation so that as they were fruitful and they multiplied and they filled the earth, the whole of the creation would be filled up with the glory of God through what he had made and through the image bearers whom he had created to bear the weight of that glory. I said when we came to the time of prayer that there is a deep longing, a deep desire in the heart of each person here. Every single one of you has longings and desires. Desire will never go away. I say this at the refuge all the time. Desire will never go away. God put desire in your soul. The Eastern mystics are wrong when they say desire is the problem. And if you could only get free of desire, then you'd be really free and you'd be really human. No. God put desire in your soul so that you would seek him. You have longings. You have passion. You have appetites for things. It is an inexhaustible sort of an appetite. And God put it there so that you would seek him. And in seeking him and seeing him, you would reflect his glory to the world around. That's what was lost. What's the one thing that Moses wanted? Do you remember his interaction with God? What did Moses want? Let me see your glory. What did God say? You can't. You can't see my glory. No one can see my glory and live. He lost the ability to see it. He lost the ability to reflect it and would be consumed by it if the veil that separated him from the glory of God were pulled away and he beheld it, he would be consumed in an instant. What's the whole trajectory of your salvation? What's the whole goal and outcome of your salvation? What is it that God is about? What is it that he's aiming for? Why is it that Morgan Roe goes to the border? Why is it that missionaries want desperately to go to Pakistan and Iraq and Turkey and Iran and all these places that are closed so that people can hear the gospel and in responding to the gospel begin to be restored? so that they can see and reflect the glory of God. What is your salvation all about? It is about restoration. It is about being able to see, behold, and reflect the glory of God. It is about being restored. It's not just about forgiveness. It's about restoration. If you want to know where you're headed as a Christian, think Jesus. Think Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, who is the full expression of the glory of God into whose image you are being conformed so that the day will come when you will stand, not with your eyes closed, not with your hands over your face as the angels do, but so that you will stand with your head raised up and your eyes wide open to behold and to reflect the glory of God. This is what Jesus, through John, is encouraging us to believe John writes these words in 1 John 3. You know this, some of you, as a scripture song. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Come on, whose image do children bear? The likeness of their parents. I'll never forget when Dr. Leonard Eppard held my firstborn child in his arms and handed her to me, and I looked in her face and saw the face of my sister. She bore the family likeness. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children. Exactly what we will be has not yet appeared, meaning we don't know exactly what we're going to look like because Jesus hasn't come back yet, and we haven't seen him. They saw him glorified after his resurrection but they didn't see him return with all of the company of the heavenly host in the midst of the glory of God but this we do know when he appears we shall be like him because we will see him as he is what's your hope friends what's my hope What have I attached my heart to? What have I pinned my heart to? I mentioned this to the Inquirer's class. C.S. Lewis' great line, idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. What is your hope? The Bible's hope for you is that the day is coming when you will be transformed and made into transformed into the glorious likeness of Jesus Christ, you will be reconstituted and able to stand in the presence of his glory and reflect that glory without being consumed. Having been justified by faith, we have peace, we have access, we have hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our brother and thank you that you are a great friend, the friend of sinners. Lord, come to your people. Press these truths deep into the fabric of our souls. We ask in your name, amen.